good. If you're here, uh, if you're here today, then welcome. No, just kidding. Uh, if you were here last week, who 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 wasn't here last week's here today? Okay, I feel sorry for you people, because uh, this is like a second part. But well, I'll try to catch you up. But last week was sort of this foundational stuff about the study of apocalyptic scripture. And so if you get a chance and you want to continue on in study of Daniel, I'd recommend going back to part one of this. But I think there'll be some good stuff here. Last week was kind of difficult. This week is like last week was the bad news a little bit. This week is the good news. We continue our study through the book of Daniel. We're in chapter seven, uh, which has the first of several uh, what we see apocalyptic visions that Daniel receives from the Lord. Visions that are filled with complex, often mysterious imagery. Prophetic visions that reveal future events, even to the end of the age. Woo, sounds, you know, exciting, right? And in Daniel chapter 7, his vision can be divided into two basic parts. The first part, which we looked at last week, is an earthly vision of four beasts. The vision itself is found in verses 1 through 8, and then the interpretation is found throughout verses 15 through 27. Let me just summarize how Daniel describes these four beasts that come out of a stirred-up sea, uh, stirred up from the four winds of heaven. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings, but then the wings are plucked off, and it was made to stand up like a man and was given the mind of a man. Beast one. Second beast was like a bear, but, but it was raised on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth and it was told to go devour much flesh. Beast two. Third beast was like a leopard with four wings and four heads, with four heads and it was given dominion or authority. And finally, the fourth beast, which is a bit hard to summarize, there's no like, it's not like anything, it's just all of this blah. So let me read the description found in verses 7 and 8. A fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold... In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. All right. So that's Daniel's vision of these four earthly beasts. And the interpretation of this vision found in 15 through 27, as I said. And if you were here last week, you know that we pretty much figured out every single detail about every beast. We know exactly who they were. And... No? Okay. We didn't, in, in case you weren't here. Really, the main thing we learned, in fact, the only thing we learn about the first three beasts is found in verse 17. The only thing we learn, like, for sure. Okay, this is the interpretation. This is all it says. These four great beasts are four kings who stand, who shall arise out of the earth. All right, we, we know that. Now, as we discussed last week, there's a, there's a lot of effort been put into identifying 
which specific kings or kingdoms these beasts represent. Many believe they're the same kingdoms found in Nebuchadnezzar's statue in chapter 2, if you remember, uh, which he does identify the head as Nebuchadnezzar and what follows, so we're pretty much sure that's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So some people think these four beasts represent those as well. With regards to the final beast, especially that little final little horn, some believe it could be uh, in the past Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid or, or Greek king who brutally oppressed the Jews in the mid-second century, while others are convinced that it represents one of the Roman emperors and or a future Antichrist. But it seems to me and others that the identity of these beasts is not the main point of the vision. And even, even if we are, even if we were able to correctly identify these beasts, these kings, it wouldn't change the main point, which is that our world is being run by a, successive, a succession of fearsome beasts that seem to go from bad to worse, each one more frightening than the one before. But ultimately, any beast any king, any ruler, any government that opposes God and his saints will be destroyed. And God will establish and reign over an eternal kingdom filled with those who trust him. That, not the specific identity of these beasts, is really the point. And that becomes even more clear as we turn to the second part of Daniel's vision. We go from the earthly vision of four beasts to his heavenly vision of God. This part of the vision is much easier to understand. In fact, unlike the visions of the beasts, no interpretation is given or really needed. And so we come to uh, the first, a vision of God as judge. Daniel saw the beast rising out of the sea, and it caused him great anxiety, as he states in verse 15. But beginning in verse 9... He'll see the author of their destruction, the author of the destruction of these beasts. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days gives you chills, the Ancient of Days. In Daniel's vision, were ushered into this heavenly throne room, this heavenly courtroom. Thrones are a symbol of ruling authority. And here thrones are placed. They're placing thrones. They're setting up the throne room. How many thrones? We don't know. But we do know that on one throne sits the Ancient of Days, takes his seat. This title, Ancient of Days, is found only here in uh, Daniel chapter 7. And it's clearly a reference to God himself. Specifically, it seems, God the Father, as we'll come to the second vision. It first reminds us that God is ancient. Really, God is eternal, right? As the psalmist writes, before the mountains were brought forth or ever had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And in Isaiah, we read, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me, there is no God. If we can speak in terms of time, uh, with regards to the one who created time itself, God alone has existed from eternity past and will exist until eternity future. And in Daniel's visions, that translates to
to one who is the ancient of days. The one who sits on the throne is eternal. He is not a created being like the beasts before. We've got these four beasts and then we come with this ancient of days. But he is the creator of all. Daniel continues, his clothing was white as snow. The whiteness of snow symbolizes complete righteousness, purity, holiness. In Psalm 51, after his great sin with Bathsheba, David prayed, purge me with the hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. In Daniel's vision, we see that God from eternity past to eternity future is sinless, pure and holy. In Isaiah 6, the angels thrice declare his holiness. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The one who sits on the throne in Daniel's vision is not only eternal, but he's holy, pure, sinless. And the hair of his head like pure wool. The purity of wool, uh, his hair, reinforces his holiness and adds the quality of wisdom that comes with age. Those of us who have, I, I kind of hide my wisdom here because I shave it off, but many others of us have this. You know, I remember my uh, great-grandmother, her hair was just solid white. I think that's the picture here, just solid white, the age and the purity of it. The one who sits on the throne is eternal, pure, wise, and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. His throne, his ruling, is like a chariot with wheels blazing. Again, the throne represents his authority to rule and to judge. And the fact that it was burning, it has burning wheels like some kind of flaming chariot, Chariots of fire, right? And that fire comes out from before him, indicates that his judgments will be powerful and they'll be severe. So the one who sits on the throne is eternal, he's pure, he's wise and powerful. And then we see a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000, that's a lot, stood before him. He's surrounded by Thousands and thousands, millions, if you will, of servants. They're probably, it's probably a reference to the angelic hosts, which make up the, this heavenly court. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The court is presided over by the Ancient of Days, the eternal, pure, wise, powerful one who sits on the throne. And as he brings the court into session, uh, the books are opened. What books? Well, Daniel doesn't tell us right here. He will mention the books again in chapter 10 and in chapter 12. But their best description, I believe, is found in the book of Revelation. In chapter 20, describing what, what many call the great white throne judgment, we're told, and I, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Probably a similar throne, the same throne as this. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So these books in Revelation record that uh, what humanity, great and small, have done. And notice two things. First, there's another book mentioned here, not specifically mentioned in uh, Daniel 7, but we'll see it in Daniel chapter 12. 
and that is the book of life. We'll talk more about that book shortly. But the second thing I want us to see is that these beasts and all humanity will be judged by what's written in these books according to what they've done. That's what we saw last week in the next verse of Daniel 7. Remember, when the heavenly court of God touches the earthly king beasts, righteous judgment is rendered. Verse 11, Daniel says, The books were opened, and I looked. Then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. That word great does not mean better than good. It means huge in size or domineering. The NASB and the NIV both translated boastful. We see the content of those great words in verse 25 down below. He, the, this little horn, same little horn, shall speak words against the Most High. So even as he, or it, is being judged, this little horn from the fourth beast continues to defiantly speak against God. I would not recommend that. Not a good move. Verse 11 continues, and as I looked, the beast was killed. Okay, no, let's not mince any words here. Speaking defiantly, boastfully against God, the beast is killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So based on what is written in the books, uh, this fourth beast is judged by the heavenly court. He's killed, cast into the fire, where his body is destroyed. And the other beasts are judged as well. Their dominion and power is taken away, but their lives seem to be prolonged. Not sure for how long, what exactly that's referring to. The point is that God has the last word. The last judgment, if you will. These beasts, which are unleashed on the world, have, have their time, but their time is limited. Their power is limited by the Ancient of Days. In his time, he will destroy all who continue in rebellion against him. And that takes us to the end of this first part of the heavenly vision. But before we go to the second part... I want us to think a little bit more about the books that were opened and God as judge, the Ancient of Days. The context of Daniel 7 is the judgment of these beasts, these, these kings, these rulers and authorities of this world who rebel against uh, the living, eternal God and persecute his followers. But according to Revelation 20, which we read... That same judgment will come to every single person who's ever lived, great and small. Now, as modern uh, sort of evangelicals, we can sometimes think of God only in terms of, of love and forgiveness, right? We sang about it just a second ago, right? But I if I remember, I was waiting for that line to come back up, Liam. There was this line of fire in that last song. We, so there was both in that last song we sung. We need to never forget God is also a God who judges. God as judge is a clear, is the, is the picture that we're presented with in Daniel chapter 7 in this vision. And it's clear throughout Scripture. Psalm 96, we're told, For the Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in the, His faithfulness. 
Now, some believe this God as judge uh, sort of passed away, passed away when the old, with the Old Testament and in the New Testament, all we find is a God of love. Well, not so. Remember, Revelation that we just read a second ago was part of the New Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 12, just one of many verses that proclaim his judgment in the New Testament, we read, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, infest, innumerable angels, that remind us of anything? Daniel 7, the thousands and thousands and ten thousands. Innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. That whole thing sounds a little bit like the same scene we saw in Daniel. God is judge of all. So I hope it's clear that despite our thoughts to the contrary, God was and is and will continue to be the Ancient of Days, who will open the books of humanity's deeds and judge us based on what he finds there. And don't think, well, I'll be okay. I mean, I'm not that beast. I don't speak against God. I don't speak boastfully about myself. I don't spout off. Well, that may be true, but Scripture is also clear that no matter who you are, no matter what you have or have not done, you cannot and will not measure up to the Ancient of Days, the, the, the pure and holy, holy, holy standards of God. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. We're all part of that description. And later in verse 23, same chapter, he plainly states, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have a problem, right? The books will be opened, and when God comes to our name, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how it's printed. Is it black and white? I don't know. But somehow, in that book, it contains the lists of what we've done. It contains all of our unrighteous deeds, our acts, our sins. And based on that alone, we, like the beasts, should be judged by fire. However, God has pro provided a solution to our problem. Don't forget the book of life. So what's the book of life? Well, there are several passages that talk about it, including Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. But for now, let me share one verse that I, I think gives us the best picture of this book. In Revelation chapter 13, which we touched on a little bit last week, it begins with a vision of a beast that seems to include many of the qualities of the beasts found in Daniel chapter 7. And many people believe this beast is a picture of the coming Antichrist. But whoever it is, in verse 8 we read, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. This beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Same book. So here we get some important information about this book of life. First, it's not a book of deeds. It doesn't record what we've done, haven't done. It's not a book of our sins. It's a book of names. Second, these names were written before the foundation of the world. This speaks to God's sovereignty 
over whose names are included in this book. The Bible refers to them as the chosen or the elect. So the book contains the names of the elect, those who God has chosen. And finally, we learn that this is the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Who's the lamb who was slain? Jesus. Jesus, who was slain on the cross for your sins and mine. So we conclude that the book of life life is a book of names of the elect, which is synonymous with all who belong to Jesus Christ, all who put their trust in him for forgiveness of their sins, which are recorded, by the way, in the other books that are opened. And what's the result of having your name written in the book of life? Well, speaking of the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, in verse 7 we read, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life contains the names of all who will be saved, who will be rescued from a godless eternity, all who will be allowed into heaven, all who are chosen by God from the foundations of the earth, all who have trusted in the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins, for the cleansing, for for God declaring them to be righteous and pure and holy. So know this. God is a God of love and forgiveness, but he's also a God of judgment. And the question is, how will you be judged? How will I be judged? Do you, like the beast, want to be judged based on your deeds? I don't advise it. It won't turn out good. Or do you want to experience God's love and forgiveness being judged based on whether or not your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life? And if you're stuck on the fact that that the names were written, they're apparently already written, uh, before the foundations of the world, don't be stuck on that. That's mysterious, and it's out of your control. It's in the hands of God. What's not a mystery, what's in our control, is that all those who put their faith in the Lamb of God, who trust in His death on the cross, will have their names written in the book of life. So you can today make sure that your name was in the book of life from the foundations of the earth by trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Okay, so that's a little bit of a side, but it's an important one, right? Now we turn to the second part of the heavenly vision. We've seen God as judge, the ancient of days. Now we turn to a vision of God as man. Verse 13. I saw in the night vision, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, who's that? Okay, you're right. Uh, If you've read the New Testament, if you've gone to church for a while, this vision is fairly clear from the start, right? 
we know who Daniel is seeing. But remember, Daniel has not read the New Testament. And the fact that the person in the vision has both human and divine traits was a problem, uh, was probably confusing to Daniel. Notice he is one like a son of man. That is, that is, he appeared to be mortal, uh, a human being. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the phrase son of man refers to just regular human people. For example, next chapter, Daniel 8. Daniel himself will be referred to as son of man. So he's like a son of man. He's like a human being, but there's more to him as well. Notice he comes on the clouds of heaven, which speaks of his divinity. In the Old Testament, God alone rides the cloud, uh, this cloud chariot. Isaiah 19.1, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Also, when this Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, he's given authority and sovereign power. These attributes are not simply the authority and sovereignty that God gives to any human king. If you remember back, it was clear that God said he gave Nebuchadnezzar his power. For, for this Son of Man also receives glory. He receives worship and service of all peoples, nations, and languages. This Son of Man is is given an everlasting and indestructible dominion, a sovereignty and a glory that belongs to God alone. So who is this one? Well, again, this is much easier for us to understand than it would have been for Daniel, because we have the benefit of the New Testament. We have the benefit of seeing this exact one who is both human and divine, Jesus Christ. For the Jews of Daniel's day and uh, really up to the time of Christ, this vision is prophetic in nature, right? It's meant to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. So Israel could expect one who is like a son of man, who who would be 100% human, but would also be the perfect son of God. 100% divine. And that's that's exactly what we see in Jesus. He enters the world as a baby. And as he grows and matures and ministers and serves, his humanity is clear. He gets hungry, gets tired, thirsty, he eats, he drinks, he sleeps. He spends time with tax collectors and sinners, yet he is without sin. And ultimately, like all men, he dies. He's led away to a cross, and on the cross, the Son of Man is pierced. He bleeds, he dies, and he's buried in a tomb. As Jesus said of himself, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But even as he lived and he died as one of us, his glory was still present. He taught as one with unparalleled authority, he forgave people their sins. And he spoke of possessing a kingdom, not to mention the fact that he said things like, uh, I and the Father are one. In Jesus Christ, there are both divine and human aspects because he is a, a son of man and the son of God, very man and very God. Okay, so we're clear on who the vision is, who, it, who the vision is uh, is. Who the vision is of? Is that right? Okay. 
But when is it taking place? Well, it seems to take place after Christ's death and resurrection. Perhaps it's a vision of his ascension, his return to his father's right hand. Sometimes we tend to forget that there there is more to Christ's ministry than his death for our sins. Yes, Christ came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. But never forget that when he returned to his father, he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom and a people to serve and worship him throughout all eternity. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, therefore God has highly exalted him. After speaking of Christ's death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sounds similar to what we see in Daniel 7. What we find in the vision in Daniel 7 and the clear teaching of Philippians 2 speaks of the ultimate triumph of Christ Jesus, the Son of Man. He will achieve victory over all the beasts of this world. Never forget that that Christ is not eternally suffering upon the cross. And when the time is right, he'll return as the Son of Man in glory on the clouds. He'll bring final judgment to his enemies. His victory over his enemies is, is hinted at in Daniel 7, sort of stated, every knee will bow in Philippians 2. But in the book of Revelation, it's clearly seen. In chapter, in a vision, clearly in a vision. Chapter 14, John sees this vision. Then I looked, and behold, a white, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe, and this is not the harvest. Go, therefore, to the harvest field and share the gospel. This is a different harvest. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Not where anyone wants to be. This is a vision of Christ's return and his judgment upon all who oppose him. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, will return and will put down all his enemies. He will be victorious. And as Daniel tells us, his dominion will not pass away. He will establish an eternal kingdom of righteousness. Okay, so those are the two parts of Daniel's heavenly vision. God, the Ancient of Days, as judge. And God, as, the, as one like a son of man both defeating and destroying what Daniel saw in his earthly vision of four beasts. Now let's see if we can put this together. As we conclude this chapter, we've, I've hinted at it, we've, I think we've seen some of the applications, some of the point. But let me just state it clearly here. Taking everything we've seen into account, what is God seeking to communicate through these visions he gave Daniel, and what does that mean for us today? Let's focus on the message of Daniel's vision. Daniel's vision of the four beasts that are four kings or kingdoms confirms what we already should know if our our heads are above, uh, are not stuck in the sand, 
right? That throughout history, in Daniel's day, even before Daniel's day, stretching to our time, the world has been and continues to be ruled by monstrous beasts. Not always. There are times... I mean, I don't know if Queen Elizabeth was a monstrous beast. I don't... You know, there are times some kings, rulers are more beastly than others. These rulers have authority to rule and to kill and destroy. They're even permitted for a time to oppress and persecute the saints of God. We know of their persecutions in the past. We read it in Scripture in the lives of Joseph and Jeremiah, Daniel himself, Stephen, Paul, John, others. We know it from history. We can read about persecution that took place during the rule of Rome all the way to the rule of the Soviet Union. And as uh, 9-11 today reminds us, persecution of, of terrorists and terrorist states throughout the world. And we continue to read about it in our world today, right? The saints of God and others are being persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned in places like Nigeria and China and Saudi Arabia, North Korea, just to mention a few. And as our nation continues to promote and celebrate things that are contrary to the Word of God, it's more than possible that in the not-too-distant future, those who stand up for their faith in Jesus Christ right here, those who stand up for the truth of God's Word, could find themselves facing more than just ridicule, real physical persecution, or imprisonment is looming on the horizon. So Daniel's vision of four beastly kingdoms should be no surprise to us. It confirms what we already know, that throughout history and right now throughout our world, believers, saints of God, are facing terrifying beasts. But Daniel 7 takes us beyond this. It takes us beyond the beasts of this world. Its purpose, its message is one of hope. Hope to all who trust in the Ancient of Days and the one who is like a son of man, Jesus Christ. Know this, Daniel's vision proclaims we shall not live in this beastly world forever. There will come a day of judgment. Now, as we've said, judgment will come to all. But the message of Daniel is that the Ancient of Days, God himself, will bring wise, holy, severe judgment to the beasts of this world. Those who oppress the saints of God will be put down. And as we look at Daniel 7, considering what the New Testament reveals, we see its message includes the fact that Christ will return and defeat his enemies. The beasts of this world will be forever defeated. And Christ will establish his eternal kingdom. And then all the, uh, all the wrongs will be set right. All tyrants, beasts will be dethroned. All that's broken will be fixed. There will be a day when even death, that last weapon of the beast, will have its power broken once and for all. On that day, the beast behind all beasts, Satan himself, will be bound and brought before the throne. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's the message of Daniel 7. In a nutshell, 
All that is evil in this world will one day be destroyed, and Christ will establish his glorious, good, perfect, eternal kingdom of which you can be a part. And with that message comes a challenge, right? And that challenge isn't to work out the specific identity of these different beasts. Instead, it's to believe and live by the message that we've received. To live in such a way that in the midst of this beastly world, our eyes and our hearts are firmly fixed on the heavenly throne room of God. Instead of being terrified by beasts, which we tend to be, we must daily dedicate ourselves to the one who will not only deliver the final and decisive judgment to every beast, but the one who delivered us from their same judgment. Daniel 7 serves as a warning, not just to the beastly kings of the earth, but to all who would choose to follow them instead of following the living God. All who follow them will share their fate, and all who follow Christ will share his fate. God is our judge as well. Are we ready to face him? Or put simply, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Because on that day of judgment, our only hope, our only hope will be that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, has taken the judgment that we deserve upon himself. He's received the wrath of God upon himself for our sins. Those things listed in the other books. Speaking of the Messiah, Christ, Isaiah writes, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Christ took upon himself the punishment we deserved. So that in the coming day, we could be exalted with him. We could reign with him forever. We could be part of his eternal kingdom so that we can be among all peoples, nations, and languages that glorify and serve him. Isn't that a great picture? It's not just a few. It's not just our culture, our country. It's all peoples, all nations will be there serving, worshiping, and glorifying Christ. Christ in our place has faced the great beast in all its fearsomeness. He's paid the debt for every sin that you or I ever committed or ever will commit. Our sin was laid upon his shoulders. He bore it. He became sin for us. And the result of his sacrifice for you and me is summarized, I believe, in the last verse of Romans, last two verses of Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, beastly kings or presidents or governors nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If God is your judge, and the Son of Man is your Savior, then let the world do its worst. The message of Daniel 7, as well as the message of much of Scripture, is this. If you belong to Christ, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, ultimately, the world has no power over you. And you can know that after the world has done its worst, God will welcome you into his very best. The Lord has a glorious inheritance stored up for you along with all the saints. 
a kingdom that is yours by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a day coming when the beasts will all be gone and all that will remain will be the saints of God. So when you feel the, the beast, whether it's a government or something else surrounding you and their hot breath is closing in on you, look upward, look onward, look beyond, look, look up to the judge, look up to the Savior, look onward to your glorious inheritance in Christ Jesus. In his commentary on Daniel Chapter 7, Ian Dukit ends with this story and, and we'll end with it as well. The 17th century Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford was no stranger to suffering and persecution. As a young man, he was exiled by the church authorities, which can be beastly as well, from his beloved parish of Anworth in southern Scotland for writing in defense of the doctrines of grace. And as an old man, when the monarchy was reinstated under Charles II, interesting that England is now being ruled by Charles III, but under Charles II, Rutherford was, was charged with high treason for his book in which he argued that even monarchs were subject to the law. When the summons came for him to appear before the crown, however, he responded from his deathbed, tell them... I've got a summons already before a superior judge, and I must answer my first summons. And before your day come, I will be where few kings and great folks come. Duke it comments, his hope was placed in the knowledge that there would soon come a time when this present world would end and be replaced with a better one. The day is indeed hastening on when the sands of time will run out and the beasts will face their judgment, but for the saints, glory will dwell forever in Emmanuel's land. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this vision, this vision of yourself. It's one of few, few places where we can get uh, just these details about you. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just burn them into our heart. You are the Ancient of Days. You are like a son of man. You are God. You became man that you might save us. Lord, help us as we continue to live as elect exiles in this world. As we continue to face uh, the beasts of our world. Father, Help us to not be overwhelmed by them, but to look to you in all things. To trust you. To know their time is limited, but you and our time with you is eternal. Help us to trust in that. And, and from that, help us to be bold. Bold proclaiming the good news. Bold living for you in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.